Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and on today's show, I talk to a real kindred spirit, someone who practiced law for years and years and then went into cooking. Although this guy has opened a few more restaurants than I have. Let's get started. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Chef Demoni. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Good Friday morning, or afternoon, or evening, or whatever day and time it might be for you when you've downloaded or chosen to stream the show. Whatever time that is, thanks for joining me here for Chef Timoni. I really appreciate it. Today's interview is the one I've been mentioning for a few weeks now. Yes, you are finally going to hear from the chef in Asia that I've been mentioning. The chef who's also got a lot of years behind him practicing as a lawyer. Coming up in just a minute is my talk with Chef Willen Lowe. Will is based in Singapore and also has restaurants in Japan and in Taiwan. I'm really excited to share this talk with you. I think you're going to enjoy it. Before the interview, though, just a couple of thoughts. Connections, more connections. The latest one comes again through the Endlessly Giving Spicy Eyes podcast. Through Christy of Spicy Eyes, I connected with another podcaster, and that is Chris of the fantastic Faces and Aces Las Vegas podcast. I've been a fan of that show for years now because I'm such a fan of Las Vegas and because Chris has such a great show on the city. And it's a lot of fun now to be in touch with Chris. He and I are already talking about a potential Vegas meetup, and no doubt if that comes together, it will focus heavily on food. Today, though, I just wanted to flag for you the latest episode of Faces and Aces. That's Season 5, Episode 64. And on it, Chris and his guests have a lot of fun exploring the phrase, Winner, winner, chicken dinner, which, of course, is something you hear quite a lot in Las Vegas. They talk about some great Vegas food spots that serve chicken in a whole variety of ways. And then, delving further into the general topic of food... Chris talks to two avid Vegas foodies, and they are Vegas Phil and the Las Vegas foodie. Chris even does an interview with Chef Michael Rizzo of the Vegas restaurant Flock and Fowl. So that's all to say, if you love hearing about food in Las Vegas, the latest episode of Faces and Aces has some great information for you. I'll put a link in the show notes for today's episode. Other news now, let's see. Oh yes, last weekend, B and I were actually in the city, which is to say Vancouver, on Saturday evening, and that was uh, very convenient because we took in a great event, a pop-up event called Bubbles and Buns at Harvest Community Foods. So Harvest, first to explain that, you've heard, of course, me talk about my friend and mentor, Chef Andrea Carlson of Burdock & Co. But in addition to Burdock & Co., Andrea and her partner own Harvest Community Foods, and that is a noodle shop and neighborhood grocery store, really, really interesting operation in Chinatown in Vancouver. Day-to-day, it is run by Chef Gabe Myers, who's another friend and somebody I've cooked with for years and years. So Harvest Community Foods was the setting for the pop-up event, Bubbles and Buns. It was put on by a duo that call themselves Room Service YVR, and the duo is uh, Neil Hildebrandt and Greg Sugiyama, and they are both wonderful chefs. I cooked with them at Burdock & Co. years ago. So for this event, they put up three delicious kinds of bao, the steamed buns, along with some really great bubbly wine, some local from Nickel Vineyards in the Okanagan Valley and some imported from Racine Wine Imports. So this felt like old home week to me. It was so much fun. It was a packed event. It was, I think, beyond sold out. There were people spilling out onto the sidewalk and milling around with uh, with these delicious buns. People there, of course, Chef Andrea Carlson was there. You've heard from her on episode one of Chef Timoni. Uh, Chef Tasha Sawyer, she appeared on episode five. Greg Sugiyama, one half of the Room Service YVR duo, he was on episode 6. And Brian Song of Racine Wine Imports, the duo behind Racine Wine Imports is Brian and Ramona, and Brian was on episode 7. Anyway, all to say, it was great to see all of those people and many more. I really love these pop-up events. I think they're really good for the city. They're a lot of fun, particularly in the summer. And room service, Neil and Greg have said that they're going to do Chapter 2 of Bubbles and Buns, so I can't wait for that. Oh, yes. Now, this is August. We are finally into August, and I have seen the first pictures of this year's tomato harvest from the absolutely legendary Stony Paradise Farms. If you live anywhere near Vancouver, or even more conveniently, the Okanagan Valley, you have to try Millen's tomatoes. Millen is the man behind Stony Paradise. 
Every Vancouver chef I know cheers the arrival of these tomatoes every summer, and I've got to get some soon. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes so you'll be able to find Stony Paradise, but really, links and pictures are only so good. You've got to find Millen and try his tomatoes. You will not regret it. All right, to today's interview now. Chef Willen Lowe, as I say, is my guest. Will is from Singapore, but he went to school for years in England, went to law school there before returning to Singapore to practice as a lawyer, and he did that for eight years. He worked in uh, litigation, which is what I've always done in my career, and then he transitioned to doing in-house counsel work for Singapore Airlines. While he was doing his lawyer work, though, Will was really interested in cooking, and you'll hear in the interview how he learned to cook really out of self-defense almost because the food in the English residences was so bad he had to do something about it and cook for himself. But he started doing pop-up events, and he would do the cooking, he would have some other lawyer friends act as his servers, And he did quite a few of these in Singapore, as I say, while he was working as a lawyer. But then somebody told him, and I really love this quote, they said, if you want to be taken seriously for something, charge for it. So then the next opportunity that Will had to do a pop-up, some friends asked him to do some cooking. He said, okay, I'll do it, but I'm going to charge you for it. And from that point on, the business took off. The media got hold of this story, this somewhat quirky story of a lawyer doing these pop-up events, cooking with other lawyers serving. So that went so well that Will decided to try cooking more seriously and more regularly. And so he got a job at an Italian restaurant. Even then, though, working more full-time in the culinary world, he was still working part-time as a lawyer. He was working for Tiger Airlines, a discount airline that had been started by Singapore Airlines. And he's got a great story about ordering olive oil one day as a cook and then negotiating airline fuel contracts the next day as a lawyer. In any case, in time, Will opened Wild Rocket, And Wild Rocket, unfortunately, just closed in October of last year of 2018. It became very well known. It hit the 50 best restaurants in Asia list, and it was known for modern Singaporean cuisine, or the term that Will coined and is very much associated with, Mod Sin Cuisine. So you'll hear on the show how he reinterpreted traditional Singaporean dishes, and he gives a great example of his new and different take on the traditional Singaporean dish, laksa. So as I say, Wild Rocket just closed last fall. I'm really sad that I did not make it in time to go, but Will has a series of restaurants that are open now. In Singapore, he has a concept called Relish. There are two locations of Relish, and Relish is a burger restaurant in the day, and then it changes into sort of an izakaya restaurant at night, Izakaya with Modsin influences. So it sounds like we can still get echoes of Wild Rocket at Relish during the evening hours anyway. Will also recently opened a restaurant called Roketo, and that is in Japan. It's in Hokkaido on ski slopes. He is a big fan of snowboarding, had an opportunity to open a casual restaurant in Hokkaido, took it up, and that's now where Will spends his winters cooking and snowboarding. And finally, Will has got a restaurant called The Fishery in Taiwan, so he is incredibly busy traveling a lot and cooking throughout Asia. In addition to all of that, though, Will is taking the time to do some great charitable work, and he's also taking time regularly, follow his Instagram account, and you'll see this to be true, he's taking time to explore the cuisine of Singapore. He is a real fan of Singaporean cuisine. So Will's got some great tips for all of us, both on where and how to eat in Singapore, including at the hawker's stalls, where he talks about vendors cooking the same one dish for decades and decades, so you know it's going to be good. Will also has some thoughts on how to put together the best quick stir fry. And he even answers that age-old question, should I go to law school or should I go to culinary school? All right, let's get to the interview now. Here's my talk with Chef Willen Lowe. So, Will, thanks very much for being here. I know it's uh, fairly early on a Monday morning for you, and it's Sunday evening for me here in Gibson's, talking between BC and Singapore, but I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to be on the show. My pleasure. Good morning from Singapore. That's wonderful. Well, please take us back to early days. I understand that uh, you left Singapore for a period of time and you studied in England. Is that right? Is that is that where you went to law school? That's right. I went to Nottingham in England. I studied law. I did my bar exams in London and um, qualified as a lawyer, worked as a lawyer in Singapore for eight years. 
<laughs> right. Wow. So you, you you actually gave it a good long go. Were you working were you working in private practice in a firm or what what sort of work were you doing? Yeah, I was with a law firm for a while. I was uh, in litigation, so I was okay. going to court and everything. And and then after that, I went in house for Singapore Airlines as their legal counsel. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or or you tell me how was that? That sounds like a good job. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I to be honest, I really enjoyed being a lawyer. Everyone thought that, you know, I hated law. That's why I became a chef. But it wasn't that case. The case was I really enjoyed being a lawyer and I just wanted to do something different after eight years. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Well, tell us maybe about how that transition came about. One thing I read in in one of the articles I read about you was that that you hadn't really been impressed with the food in the uh, I guess university residences in England, and so maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe cooking started out of self defense. But but <laughs> yeah, it was self preservation. <laughs> okay, so so how did that start? Like, were you doing sort of pop up work while you were working as a lawyer? How did you start the um, the culinary side of things? Right. So when I was a student, the food was really terrible in the hostel. So I started cooking. And before long, you know, I started having many friends visit me during mealtimes, you know, because they all wanted to be fed. And I did that and really enjoyed it. I came back home to Singapore. I started working as a lawyer. And on weekends, you know, just to de-stress, I would cook for my friends. And they'll come for dinner. I'll cook for maybe you know, eight to 10 friends. And then I read something that said, you know, if you want to be taken seriously for anything you do, you have to charge money for it. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) So then a friend said, hey, you know, I I have a house uh, warming coming up. Would you come cook for us? And I said, yeah, I'll come cook for you if you pay me. And, Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. and I did that and I thought that was kind of fun and we started a sort of a private chef catering service and it was called we'll cook we'll eat and that was that's also the name of my Instagram account right right yeah and oh. then we started from there uh, Mondays to Fridays I would you know work as a lawyer Saturdays and Sundays I became a private chef for hire if you have a private dinner at home I'll come and cook at your home two of my colleagues who are lawyers would turn up and be my wait staff okay is that right wow so it was a whole gang of lawyers showing up <laughs> yes it was that was what happened <laughs> wow. And and was it? Um, I, I've done a few private cooking gigs as well, and I found them in many ways more challenging than restaurant cooking because you sort of have to show up with your kitchen in many cases, or it, or at least a lot of your equipment. Did you did you that, find the same thing? That's right. Yeah, but the thing was, I haven't started cooking professionally, so you know, it was basically everything I had at home was quite basic, and I just brought. Yeah, I pretty much brought the kitchen to wherever I was cooking. But in many ways, it wasn't that difficult because a lot of these homes that invited me to to cook um, had very well-equipped kitchens. It's the only challenge was that every oven behaved differently. Right. So that that was my only challenge. Yeah. Okay. And who who were your clients typically? Was it was it sort of corporate gigs or wealthy individuals who would have you into private homes or? So it 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 started with friends. Mm-hmm. And many of them were lawyers because that that was my social that's, circle. Sure, that's who you know. <laughs> yeah. And then the uh, local press caught wind of it and ran an article. And then it was just, yeah, we were just busy every weekend because everyone was just really curious, you know, like, oh, we can get, we can engage lawyers to cook for us. Right, right. <laughs> And and hopefully they're not charging us their lawyerly <laughs> hourly rate. Yes, and they all get to sign uh, indemnity forms before we start cooking. Right, so. right. Just <laughs> add a little fun to the evening. So it's the case. I think this is right that you 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 really started this. It sounds like you've always had an interest in food, but you didn't do formal culinary training. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Not at all. So I started cooking because, as I said, the food was terrible um, in the hostels. And then I came back home and I was doing this uh, private chef thingy for maybe a year or two. And then I decided, and everyone was saying, hey, you know, you should really open a restaurant. And I was thinking, yeah, cooking for, you know, 10 people every weekend, it's kind of fun and easy. But if I had to cook in a restaurant and open my own restaurant, there are a lot you know, there's a lot more to it than than just, you know, doing it for fun. 
So what I did was I quit my job as a lawyer and found an Italian restaurant that was willing to hire me as a kitchen help. And I worked there. Yeah, I worked there for close to two years, you know, but I never got to touch the uh, hot stove at all. I I was chopping vegetables, uh, cleaning squid, you know, and pretty much that. But I, I really enjoyed it. And I thought, yeah, you know, this is something I, I don't mind doing, you know, for the rest of my life. And then how long did it take from from that period of time? So what what year would that have been, Will? Because I, th- I think I know you, you opened Wild Rocket in, in 2005. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So this was in 2004, I believe. And what happened was I was intending to stay in this restaurant for maybe five years to learn the ropes. And what had happened prior to this was I, I had left my name as a volunteer with my my church, that if there was a disaster anywhere in the world, I would go as a volunteer. And what happened then was um, there was a tsunami um, that hit Aceh in Indonesia. It was really a, a bad one. And my church had then called me and said, hey, you know, you, you volunteered some years back. We need, we need some people to go to Aceh to do some relief work and uh, rebuilding work. And, um, and I, I said, okay, I'll go. Uh, it was really funny because we had a meeting with the um, the all the other volunteers, and there were engineers, there were teachers, there were doctors and nurses, and then there I was. Hi, I'm a lawyer, and everyone just looked at me and said, uh, what, "What are you gonna do again? <laughs> <laughs> do God for for the natural disaster." And then I said, oh, oh, I'm I'm a cook as well. And then everyone's eyes lit up and said, great, please join us. Hey, an, an actual skill that we can do. That, yeah, exactly. And then what happened was just two days before we flew off to Indonesia, I think the um, the um, Indonesia was really nationalistic and they you know didn't want any help from anyone because there was a lot of press about many countries going to help them. And they said, you know what, we can do this ourselves. You know, we don't need any help. So they closed their doors. So I was, I, w- I had already quit my job. So I was jobless. And I was thinking, oh, what am I going to do next? And so I started um, looking for um, a restaurant space to, to open my restaurant. In the meantime, I went back to be a lawyer. Um, what had happened was whilst I was working in the Italian restaurant, um, I, ha- I actually had a freelance uh, legal job. Singapore Airlines, which I was working for, had started a budget airline called Tiger Airways, and they needed a lawyer in there. So I was their lawyer, but because I became a chef, I could only do it freelance. So every Monday, which was my day off, I would go to the office to do the uh, paperwork. And the rest of the days after working as a, a, a cook, I would come home at midnight and turn on my computer and did all the legal work for Tiger Airways. <laughs> So, <laughs> so that is a schedule. So now, I know it was really busy. On one hand, I was talking to a supplier about olive oil, and then next, I'm looking at fuel contracts for the airline. So it's kind of funny. <laughs> That's great. That, <laughs> and then, so because I had quit my restaurant job, Tiger Airways was still keen to keep me on. Um, so I, I had Mondays that I continued to work uh, for Tiger Airways. And then CNBC Asia, the news channel, asked if I was keen to join their team. And I said, yeah, but I can't come on Mondays because I work for an airline. And they said, fine, come Tuesdays to Fridays. So I did that. And so I had two lawyer jobs, one for um, Tiger Airways and one for the news channel. And every Wednesday, because I made friends uh, with a pastry chef at the Italian restaurant, she would come to my house in the evenings and we would bake cakes to sell uh, um, online and we would supply wow. illegally to cafes. <laughs> wow, this is a, a three-ring yeah, so circus that, here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was crazy. I was doing that. And on weekends, I carry on with my Will Cook, Will Eat uh, private chef catering services. So that was a really busy period of my life. Compared to that, opening a restaurant, which which always strikes me as one of the most difficult undertakings one could take on that if as for you it, it might mean that you only have one job so maybe it wasn't quite so bad <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i did that for for a while and then we discovered this restaurant space it's at mao emily and I, I went to look at it i really liked it and then we said okay let's open our restaurant here and yeah and the rest as they said was history 
And is that the space, that's the space that became Wild Rocket? That's right. That became the space for Wild Rocket. And when you say we, who else was involved oh. at the, in the opening? Was your, <laughs> yeah. Actually, well, I, I say we to make myself feel better, but it was, right, it was right. just me. <laughs> okay, it was the, ro- the royal we. The royal we, we yeah. Doing everything. And and tell it tell us about Wild Rocket. I and and I'm sad because I understand it's it's very recently closed in sort of the mm. fall of last year. But that but that's right. a 13 year a 13 year run, which is impressive. So so please tell us about it. I've I've read a bit about it. I know modern mm-hmm. Singaporean or mod sin is the the phrase that I hear associated with us with it. But but yeah, tell us what what you were doing there. Right. So um, when I opened the restaurant, I wanted to serve something that I cooked for myself. And when I was a student in England, a lot of the times I missed home. And when a Singaporean tells you he misses home, he actually misses the food from home rather than home itself. (laughs) (laughs) So what I did was I couldn't find all the ingredients I wanted in England. So I had to mix and match different things. And the end result never looked like food from Singapore. But when I ate it, it always reminded me of home. And so that's how I wanted to cook, you know, and, and I did that, uh, basically taking classic traditional flavors and ingredients um, and turning it on its head, serving it a different platform or different way of cooking or maybe at a different temperature, but always keeping close to the spirit of the original dish. And everyone came and was like, wow, this is, we've never seen something like this before. And they started asking me the, the the journalist started asking me, you know, what's the cuisine? And I did, I just kept saying, oh, I just cook what I like to eat. And they couldn't pigeonhole me. So yes. they started calling me fusion, which is not wrong. But, you know, in the 80s, fusion was done so badly. Right. It was, yes. it was yeah, it was confusion, you know. <laughs> yes. So yes. I, I That's a better term. I didn't want... Yeah, I didn't want to be associated with that. So I said, you know what? I'm a modern Singaporean and I'm cooking Singaporean food in a modern way. Let's call it modern Singaporean. And and the term mod sin, you know, I thought was a lot catchier. So I said, yeah, let's call it mod sin. And that's how it stuck. How it stuck. Neat. And can, can you give us an example of a dish or two that would uh, sort of capture doing something traditional, but in a new way or a different take mm-hmm. on it? So um, laksa is a traditional um, uh, noodle dish in Singapore. It's essentially a coconut spicy noodle soup Mm -hmm. with seafood. Yeah, with seafood. Yes, I I know it and love it. (laughs) Great. And so in Singapore, there is a particular herb that we use uh, to flavor this laksa. Uh, It's known as Vietnamese mint, I think, in in North America. And in Singapore, we don't use Vietnamese mint for anything other than laksa. So anybody who eats that mint will go, oh, I want to eat laksa. And so what I did was I made a pesto um, with laksa leaves, which is the Vietnamese mint instead of basil, and added many of the other ingredients like dried shrimps and candle nut into the pesto. And then we serve it as a pasta with tiger prawns. So it, it, it was a green pasta dry dish. Nothing like a red coconutty soup, but everyone who ate it was like, "Wow, this is messing us up, right?" It looks like an Italian pasta, <laughs> but, but it all the flavors of yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was our first dish that became very quickly our signature dish. And and you you really did have success with that restaurant. I I, I recall seeing. I think it was 2016. You were named to one of the one of the lists, the 50 best uh, restaurants in Asia. That's right. So we we um, we were. We were really stoked that we were um, in Asia's 50 best restaurants list. Um, and the New York Times uh, wrote about us twice. So that, it was beyond my wildest dream, you know, like um, this lawyer who said, ah, I want to cook for fun. And then, you know, we were, we were really, really honored. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. What was, the, what was the size of the team like at Wild Rock? And what was the size of the restaurant? Like how many, how many seats did you have? The restaurant could take uh, 50 uh, seats and the kitchen team was a team of six. And the front of the house, we had um, full-time staff. We had three to four uh, full-time staff in the front of the house. And it did. And and how was there was there an arc throughout the history of the of the 13 years? Did the restaurant change or evolve much? How, How did it proceed over those 13 years? Well, it, yeah, it changed over the the thirteen years. I I think the thing uh, the thing about the thing for me 
is that the restaurant had to stay relevant. Um, you know, if you have a traditional uh, cuisine restaurant, that's fine. You, you remain the same, you know, forever. And no one wants you to change because, you, you know, you're priced for being traditional. But for, for my restaurant, which is modern Singaporean, it's something that you, you don't want it to be a fad. You know, you don't want people to come and go and then say, yeah, I've done that. I'm not coming back. And so we had right. to stay relevant. And how how people were eating, you know. Um, and so we, we, we did that throughout, um, you know, say from the start, it was a very simple, casual restaurant. And we realized that, you know, people wanted a, a better experience, better wine. And, and I started doing pairing with wine. And then at some point, we moved from wine to sake because sake is, is made from rice, which um, was, um, in terms of reference, it was a, a closer reference to our food, which is very Asian. And then at its last installation, um, we started doing an omakase, which is, um, you know, chef decides. So you come, you sit mm-hmm. down, you don't even know what the menu is. And we would do 10 courses and, you know, surprise you, basically. Oh, I'm even more more bummed that I missed it. Although I, I understand <laughs> I understand there are some echoes of Wild Rocket still, right? Like Because you have, do you have two locations now for Relish? Is that right? That is correct. So we opened Relish as a burger restaurant. It's really funny because um, I remember my, my friends coming to eat at Wild Rocket and then sometimes they go, you know what? I'm craving a burger. Could you make me a burger? And I'm like, <laughs> ah, okay, I'll make you a burger. Oh. And I made him a burger and, you know, people sitting around goes, what did he just order? And they're like, yeah. Oh, I want a burger. Yeah. So, so before you know it, everybody started coming to the restaurant demanding for a burger. And, and then I thought, yeah, okay, uh, great. I love my burgers, but Wild Rocket is a modern Singaporean restaurant. So I thought, why don't we open a burger restaurant? And so we opened Relish. And the part of the reason was that the, the, the team of staff that helped me open Wild Rocket, I wanted to, you know, they helped me achieve my dream. So I wanted to, to include them in the success as well. So they all became shareholders with me in Relish. And so Relish was run as a burger restaurant, but always with a modern Singaporean um, sensibility to it. And and now the, the new installation of Relish, which we just opened at Fraser's Tower in Singapore, has both a burger restaurant and Wild Rocket vibes to it. And as we are speaking, we've just launched a dual concept uh, to the restaurant in the evenings. We run it as a modern Singaporean tapas, izakaya style of restaurant. So it's like wow rocket, but casual. But casual, wonderful. And, and earlier in the day, you're serving burgers. That's right. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Can can you can you just give us a little? And this is this is not really a fair question because I'm sure you could answer for hours. But I I've never been to Singapore, mm. and it's certainly on my list. And and it, part part of the reason for this question is is your fault. It's your Instagram feed, and because you're constantly going to these <laughs> these amazing looking food stalls, and yes. I know. Is full of great, you know, high end, fancy restaurants, yes. but it seems to me too that it has just an incredible uh, street food and food cart kind of culture. So, can you can you give us just a quick overview of of what I would encounter walking around Singapore? So the amazing thing about Singapore is because you know Singapore's cuisine is a mixture of different cuisines, right? The people, the, Singapore is made up of Chinese people, Indian people, Malay people. Um, and uh, Europeans, right? So it's it's a it, when we, Singapore was founded, it was you know it was used as a trading post for spices. So you throw in all these different people from different countries living in the in Singapore, hoping to cook food that they ate from their home countries, but not being able to find the ingredients, pretty much like me in England. And so they had to mix and match different things. And, you know, a Chinese person cooking will go, hey, what's that spice? It's an Indian spice. Let me add it to my Chinese food. Let's see how it, it turns out. And that's essentially what happened. And Singapore cuisine was born out of, out of that you know and so when i have chinese chefs visiting singapore um, i'll say let me take you to a chinese restaurant and they'll eat something and go this isn't entirely chinese you know or i have indian friends coming and they go I, I i brought my indian chef friends to this place and i said oh they have the best fried noodles come come eat indian fried noodles and they said willin in india we don't eat noodles we eat bread and rice <laughs> Noodles right. is from China, from China, not from India, you know. And so that's right. what Singapore food is. And and a lot of the hawkers, we call them hawkers with food stalls. Mm-hmm. Uh, each stall serves one dish, right? So you have someone who served that one dish 30 years of his life. 
She's wow. doing nothing but fried noodles, for example. And we have hawker centers, which is um, like a food court. And you have easily 30 to 50 stalls, each stall specializing in one dish, which also means you can eat there every day for a month without repeating the same dish. Without repeating anything. And every day for a month, you're eating something prepared by somebody who's done that one thing for decades. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly what it is. And and very inexpensive. You know, you can have a meal there, very inexpensive. And that's the great thing about Singapore. You get to eat street store food and you can go to the high-end, fancy, white tablecloth restaurant and you can get a complete experience from, you know, cheap to super expensive and every time guaranteed of a great meal. It sounds wonderful. Okay, um, it's moving to the top of the list now. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us, Will, please, about uh, about some of your other projects because I know you're working a little bit further afield these days. And mm-hmm. again, through Instagram and uh, some snowboarding pictures, I know that you've been, sp- <laughs> you've been spending time in Hokkaido. That's um, right, yeah. So, so please tell us about that. That's Rocketo. Which is literally slope side, right? On a on a ski hill. That's right. Yes, I. Wild Rocket has been open for thirteen years, and I was, to be honest, I was getting a little bored. Okay. <laughs> so I said I need to challenge myself and do something different. And my landlord uh, at Wild Rocket um, had just built a hotel in Hokkaido, just on the ski slopes. And she said, "Hey, I recall you liked snowboarding." And it's like, "Yeah." And I recall you saying that you know you're looking to you know, open something outside of Singapore. Uh, Would you consider coming with us to Niseko uh, in Hokkaido? And I said, yeah, let me do that, you know. <laughs> sure. And, <laughs> sure, why not? And she said, you didn't even think. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> That's I was thinking I about the snowboarding. <laughs> That's right. And so I, I agreed and um, we shut uh, Wild Rocket so that I could <laughs> essentially move to Hokkaido for winter. The restaurant is only open for winter. And we decided to do something completely different from Wild Rocket, which is very high-end, to something that's really casual. So it's like a ramen uh, sort of counter service noodle uh, uh, restaurant. And uh, it's self-service. Uh, we serve three noodles, <laughs> and that's it. And that's awesome. um, And it's modern Singaporean, again, in the sense that, you know, we use Japanese uh, noodles, traditional Japanese noodles, ramen and udon. But the soup base and the flavors are traditional Singapore flavors. Interesting, interesting. And and how has the reception been in Japan? And and what is your customer base there? Is it? Um, I imagine you'd you'd have, of course, both a Japanese customer base, but also probably an international customer base. <laughs> Actually, it's a much more a international uh, base uh, okay. customer than um, than Japanese because uh, Niseko is filled with more international guests than than local guests and it's 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 funny because um 70 of my customers are singaporeans <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're looking for some flavors from home that's right they're missing laksa in japan right, right <laughs> they right. come to us and the funny thing is i'm doing a traditional laksa soup base now so it's red but with japanese noodles okay okay and so yeah, twenty percent of our customer base um, are Australians, and yes. I would say maybe ten percent is a mixture of everyone else, including Japanese guests. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so the Singaporean crowd is uh, it continues to support you wherever you are. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> I read one quote that sort of it made me laugh and made me think, and it was a it was a an article talking about Rocketo and the quote they had from you was uh, about the type of work you're doing there. And you said, I clean the toilets, wash dishes, clear the trash, cut onions, scrub the kitchen floors, cook staff meals and shovel snow daily. <laughs> this was, I was going to ask you this question later, but maybe I'll just jump in and, and ask it now. And the, and the question is, do you see similarities between the culinary world and the legal world. And this quote made me think of a similarity that I often see having done both jobs. And that's that both fields, being chefs and being lawyers, for whatever reason, they're perceived from the outside as being quite glamorous jobs. <laughs> but when you're when you're actually in the trenches, they're kind of just hard work a lot of the time, right? That is right. That's right. I, you, you've got it right the, uh, on the nail's head. Um, I, I recall my my pastor in church used to say, when you look at a swan on a lake, it looks graceful and, you know, and, and elegant. But what you don't see is under the water, 
it's paddling like crazy <laughs> paddling for all it's worth <laughs> yeah and i think that's exactly what it is you know we everyone sees the glamorous side of things but they don't see the crazy tremendous hard work that goes under the water and that's and that quote it just brought it back to me that there are very few chefs no matter uh, and and frankly very few lawyers no matter what level you reach you're still always doing kind of a heavy lifting always doing that yeah. non-glamorous work that's right. That's right. Yeah. But that's the difference between uh, working as a lawyer and as a chef. As a lawyer, I never apologize for anything, even though it is my fault. But as a chef, I apologize for everything, even though it's not my fault. Not your fault. Oh, interesting. Inter- okay. And <laughs> You know, when you run a restaurant, someone comes to the restaurant and say, I want to sit by the window. Oh, I'm so sorry. There are no seats by the window. You know, you have to apologize for everything. Right. Right. Because ultimately, you're responsible for the, for the guest experience. That's right. Yes. Well, tell us a bit, if you would, um, Will, about your other projects. And I think you have you opened a place or are you contemplating opening a place, uh, a noodle bar in Taiwan as well? Yes, we've opened a noodle bar in Taiwan, in Hualien, which is a, a beautiful uh, countryside uh, place full of mountains and the ocean. And my business partners in Taiwan, they, they run a fishery. And um, so the restaurant is called The Fishery. Essentially, it's a, a traditional Singapore fish soup restaurant, but serving Jap- um, not Japanese, sorry, I beg your pardon, Taiwanese uh, handmade noodles. Again, run like a ramen-style counter service but uh, traditional Singapore fish soup uh, with Taiwanese noodles. Wonderful. How And how long have you been open? How long has this place been open? Two months now, actually. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> so you're just getting... So what is what is your travel schedule look like? Are you bouncing oh, between Hokkaido and Singapore and Taiwan? It's crazy. My, my travel schedule is crazy. And it's, it, it, partly it's because um, I, I, I plan it that way. Um, I spend my entire winter in Hokkaido. Three times a year, I go to Taiwan to ensure that the restaurant there is doing okay. Mm-hmm. And in between, I travel uh, everywhere else, to be honest. Oh. This sounds like a good job. (laughs) Yeah, because I think, you know, for the first three years when I opened my restaurant, I could not take a day off at at, at all. You know, it just, I was just locked in there. And um, 15 years later, I, I, you know, I see the value of traveling. I think I I love restaurants to begin with because I was a patron. And Mm. working in a restaurant for so long, I forgot what it was like to be a patron and why I love restaurants in the first place. And I think every now and then it's important for us in the business to enjoy hospitality so we can remember the magic of hospitality and why we love providing hospitality to other people. I think that's a really important thought because you can lose yourself on the side of providing it, right? And then that's it can, right. yeah, it can just become a grind if you're putting in those 16-hour days back to back to back. What what are your thoughts on the business side of the restaurant? You've obviously been successful with with multiple restaurants. Is there anything you would point to as a um something that's that's particularly mattered to your success? And you mentioned partners. Is it finding the right partners? Is it mm-hmm. is it what is it because I see it's interesting, both lawyer, again, both lawyers and chefs, the the sort of the two career groups I know, some can be very talented lawyers, can be very talented chefs, but that doesn't mean at all that they're any good at running a small business, which is what mm. law firms and restaurants are. So right. are, are, there, are there any secrets that you've uh, discovered on the business side of the business? I think very early on, I realized that, you know, when we were talking about how I opened the restaurant, I kept saying we, and you were asking me why I kept saying we, right, when it was just me. Because right. I learned very quickly that I could not do this on my own. And the team that stuck with me, in fact, after 15 years, I can safely say that um, maybe 70% of my staff are still with me. And um, I think that's what, that's how the magic has happened. It's because of them. The first three years when I opened Wild Rocket, it was a purely selfish ambition because I wanted to be a chef, you know? Right. And yeah. after that, I was like, I've done that. I needed something bigger to to drive me. And I, I you know, I told myself, okay, um, going forward, these are the two driving forces. One was the team that made it work. How do I benefit them and keep them happy? We spend more time in the restaurant than at home. So this was like a family as well. And if you're not happy there, you're not going to be able to do something good. So, you know, the environment, you know, everyone works well together. We, you know, we, we enjoy working together. And also financially, 
that's why I said they all had a stake in the businesses um, that we grew right. from. And the other the other driving force was that you know we were we've been very blessed you know in the business so we want to give back um, to society and uh, in that vein um, we support um, an orphanage in uh, Beijing in China and an orphanage in uh, Uganda. Wow, isn't that great? And and how did you select those those recipients? Uh, it was actually what we did was in Singapore um, every year we would identify a different charity to support and I love kids and I'm not married I have no kids but I, I have a good friend who's a lawyer and she moved to uh, Beijing with her family and she volunteers at an orphanage there and she would constantly send me pictures of babies who were because the babies that it's called Morning Star Foundation and Morning Star Foundation um, takes in babies who have severe heart conditions that require open heart surgery and they get abandoned because it's just too expensive to get surgery for the babies in, in China. So the parents who are poor, they abandon the babies in the hope that someone would help the babies. Wow. And that's where we come in. We raise money for their surgeries. Um, so so my friend was volunteer there, volunteering there and she would send me pictures of the babies and she would say, oh, could you pray for this baby because, you know, she's going for surgery and things like that. And then one day she sent me a message and she said, oh, could you pray for something else? We've run out of money um, to run the mm. orphanage. And that's how I got involved. That is great. And that's got to be really rewarding both for you and I'm guessing your, that gives your staff something to, to rally behind as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, it's, it's been a, a great cause, I think. Many for times sure. we wow. think that we are, we are helping the children, but in many ways we end up helping ourselves. You know, it opened our eyes to, to so much things and it really makes us understand and realize how small some of our problems really are. Particularly when you're operating, uh, you know, at the, at the restaurant level or in the other job we know in the legal world, you know, those yeah. problems are serious um, yes. and, and demand attention. But yeah. yeah, some of these other experiences, you're right, they really do open our eyes to what's actually really serious. That's right, yes. And and your travel, where else do you, you mentioned a lot of travel, and are you constantly, when you're, when you're out on the road, are you kind of imagining you are, you're sampling dishes, and are you incorporating stuff from your travels back into your dishes at home? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I travel, you know, I have a, a sort of a schedule, like if I have three days, I can run away from Singapore, I'll go to Bangkok. If I have okay. five days, I go to Hong Kong. If I have seven days, I go to Tokyo, uh, Japan, basically. And if I have more than that, then it's uh, Europe or the US or North America, yeah, uh, which is quite rare. So I tend to be in Hong Kong, Japan, and Thailand mostly. All great food centers. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And I and every time I'm eating something. So the funny thing is everyone thinks that, oh, he, you know, it must be really stressful being a chef because he's eating and he's dissecting what goes into the, you know, the, the recipe. How is this cooked? Actually, when I eat, I, I eat as a glutton. I, I don't think. I just okay. eat. I go, good. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. So that yeah. first and foremost, I eat. I go, oh my goodness, that's so good. And I'm just eating, eating, eating. And then I finish eating. I go, oh my goodness, I didn't dissect this at all. So I need to come back and eat this again as a chef. <laughs> right. And then start to think about it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, isn't that great though? Because other chefs I've spoken to, and I, I, I can think of one here in my hometown of Gibson's uh, just outside of Vancouver. We got onto this topic of how chefs often love very almost junky food. You know, you might go out after service <laughs> and you Absolutely. might, you know. You know, you're not going for something healthy or particularly well executed. You're going for no. fried chicken or you're going, yeah. for, you know, something. And and this fellow, Mike Buono, he was saying, yeah, it's, you know, you spend so much time thinking about what you're eating and thinking about taste and adjusting seasonings that you just want to go out and have a flavor bomb you don't have to think about. <laughs> exactly, exactly. He's, he's, he's absolutely right. Can you tell me, this is sort of back to the uh, back to the business side, but you're, you're really quite active on Instagram. You've got lots and lots of followers. Is that, is that, and I think we're, you and I are about the same age, which is to say in our very late, early 40s. And <laughs> I wonder, is, is that something that comes naturally to you and, you and you enjoy social media? Yeah, the funny thing is I never had Facebook, you know, and everyone was on Facebook and I was like, why do I want to post something for the whole world to see? I used to, you know, like find that quite disdainful. Mm -hmm. and But I took pictures of food 
all the time. And my friends were all going, why are you taking pictures of food and not sharing it? I'm like, well, I take it for myself. And then what happened was everyone would ask me, where can I eat? You know, um, when I go to Bangkok, where do I eat when I, you know, what's the best fried noodles? Where's the, and I always had to scroll through my phone just to look for those pictures those to pictures. show them. And I could never find because I have like, I don't know, 50,000 pictures in my phone. <laughs> of noodles. <laughs> yeah, of noodles alone, right? So I had to find a way to organize it. And then someone said, why don't you use Instagram and you could hashtag things and you could organize it in a way that you could find things easily. And because we are always asking you where you're eating and you know what you're eating, we are so curious what you're eating. If you do that, we won't have to bother you and we could just go onto your Instagram and see what you're eating at where. And, and that's how it started. Okay, that's great. And it's and it's certainly taken off from there. Yes, yes. And I'm really enjoying it as you can tell. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and I find, you know, there's there's a lot of negative criticism around social media, but um mm-hmm. I, I gotta say, since I've started using Instagram for maybe I'm not sure exactly about a year for this account. And uh, it's been great. It's, it's so many connections that I just simply exactly. would not have made otherwise. Exactly, right? We are talking between two different continents and two different time zones. This would not have happened if it wasn't for Instagram. No, absolutely. Well, listen, just a few more questions, Will, and I'm, I'm moving into the, the tips for, for listeners section. So one, one question I've often asked chefs and others in the industry is what diners can do. And here's, I'll give you an example. My tip on this in answer to this question is consider becoming a regular at a restaurant. But the, oh, yeah. qu- the question is, what can diners do? Because there's so much focus on what restaurants can do to improve mm-hmm. the experience for guests. But mm-hmm. what can diners do to improve their own experiences mm-hmm. uh, for eating out? I think the most important thing is that you have to respect your server. You know, I, yeah. a lot of times, you know, over the 15 years, I have seen all kinds of customers. And that there's a class of customers that think that if I am demanding and I'm rude, I will get good attention from the service staff. You know? right, and right. I think that's just, that's actually quite the opposite, right? I, I agree. You, Careful yeah, what you, you do. Yeah, we are cooking your food. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, but I think the main thing is, you know, if you want to have, I, I personally like love hospitality and I want it to be sincere, you know? And yeah. people who are in the service industry, we are there because we love this job. And if you treat us right with respect, we're going to give it back to you double fold, you know, tenfold. Right. And, yes. and, and, I think that that's that's something that you know it's counterproductive. I you know if somebody comes to my restaurant and is unreasonable and you know if you you are demanding it's fine if you are reasonable but if you are unreasonable and you're rude, I'm not going to give you any attention. You know right. I don't need I don't need bad vibes in my restaurant. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great tip and I th- and I think it's something that that servers any servers hearing the show are going to thank you for raising because I think it's yeah it's good for the guest and it's just good for the server. Everybody yeah. you can you can actually have such a better experience when you politely engage with absolutely people. yeah absolutely. Now another question and another one that I've asked other chefs: Can you give us a dish? I won't even call it a recipe, but something that you can, that something that people can make at home that I can make at home, and uh, something that you can describe in you know thirty seconds and might take me ten minutes to put together. But but what's a delicious something that you would uh, recommend people try? Right, I, I, you know, it's something that I cook a lot when I'm um, in Japan, uh, even in Singapore. It's really simple. What you need is spring onions or scallions or leeks. I, I love that. And um, what I'll do is, okay, you pretty much need leeks or spring onions, thinly sliced pork belly, if possible. Yes. Um, yeah. or beef, you know, and um, some very good quality light soy sauce, and that's it, you know. And that's so it. What, yeah, it's yeah. really simple. If you have some white wine or some sake, great. All you need to do is to heat the pan really hot with just a little bit of oil. Throw in your spring onions or your scallions or leeks. Let it brown. Don't touch it. Let it brown so that the, the caramelization comes through. The fragrance of the spring onion will hit you. And then take it out, right? Mm-hmm. Throw yeah. in the pork or the beef. Or you could start with the pork or the beef because the fat from the pork or the beef will come through. The, you, you saute the beef or the pork, take it out, let the oil be there, let the fat be there, then cook the spring onions, get the flavors through. Throw in the beef again with the spring yeah. onions, drizzle some soy sauce, add in some sake or white wine, toss it in high heat, and then out, boom, you have the easiest stir fry that you can eat on its own or with rice. 
perfect. Beautiful. Okay, I love it. Thank you. I'm going to try it. Last couple of questions. So we we've talked about your experiences in law, and this this isn't a really this is another unfair question because I know the answer is subjective for everybody. But if you had some uh, young person coming to you today saying, "Should I go to law school or should I go to cooking school?" Where would, <laughs> where would you point them? What, or what advice? Would wow. You- <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a tough one. I mean, if I could leave live my life all over again, I wouldn't change a single thing. So I think it doesn't matter whether you start in law school or you start in cooking school. Just whatever you do, give it your best shot, right? Every day, just keep doing better and opportunities will just present themselves. Great advice. I love it. Now, last question. When are your travels going to bring you to Vancouver? Oh, I'd love to come to Vancouver. I've heard how beautiful it is. Um, when I was, restaurant was uh, in uh, in uh, Niseko in Hokkaido, one of our part-time staff is she's from from Vancouver. You know, she's a oh, student right. from Vancouver, and she was just on a working holiday. And yeah, I I promise I'll come visit. And I have some friends in in Canada as well that I would love to visit. Terrific, good. Well, please look me up when you do, and I uh, definitely will. Yeah, love to meet up. Listen, Will, and thank you so much for taking the time. It's it's been a real pleasure, and I'm so glad you've appeared on Chef Demoni. Thank you so much, Will. Thank you. Thanks, Will, for taking the time to share your thoughts and for coordinating schedules with me across a very large time zone difference. When you do make it to Vancouver, please look me up. Okay, that is all for today's show. Please take a moment to rate Chef Demoni, and if you like, to write a review for the show. You can do that where you listen, whether that's on Apple Podcasts or one of the other podcast apps. And as you know, I love to hear from listeners. So if you've got a comment or a question for the show, a topic suggestion or a chef you'd like to hear from or a lawyer or somebody who's both like Will, please send me a message on Instagram or Facebook, or you can just email me at graham at chefdemoni.com. Thanks for joining me today. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you next week right here on Chef Demo.